Good Sunday morning, Iowa. It's Dr. Rick Godding. Thanks so much for spending a little bit of time here with me this morning. And uh, I guess we are officially in the dog days of summer. I've never actually looked at why they call it the dog days of summer, but these are they. So here we are. Ragbri is coming up. Of course, it's coming through Carol here and obviously many other towns and they expecting lots of people going that last Ames through through Des Moines route. So yeah, so I encourage cycling. I think biking is the best for your knees anyway and uh, for your ankles as well as far as and even the hips. Although interestingly, runners get more hip arthritis and knee arthritis than ankle arthritis. I don't know. Ankles just don't get as bad as often. But cycling, especially for knee arthritis, seems to really, really help. My fellowship chairman, so I did my fellowship, I did my shoulder and knee fellowship in Perth, Australia. And uh, I did with a guy down there who was, uh, he was, very, very busy, did 1,600 surgeries a year, and uh, he was the first, so Western Australia is, it's a state, so they have, I don't know, five or six states, so Sydney is in New South Wales on the East Coast, and then there's the Northern Territory, sort of where all the crocodiles are and everything, and where the Great Barrier Reef is, and then you come around, coming south, and there's Adelaide, and uh it's a little bit more, a little drier uh, down south. And then the entire interior is a big desert. And then get back over to the west coast, and it's a little bit drier than Sydney for sure. But, I mean, Perth is, Perth is, the climate is like San Diego. So if you've ever been to San Diego, it's basically sunny all year. It's never over 95 and never under 65. So it's it's pretty nice. Beautiful city. It's just a gorgeous place. Well, so Western Australia is is a giant state. I don't know how many millions of people they have there, but it's not, you know, it's not like Texas. It's bigger than Texas, but population-wise, it's more like probably, I don't know, let's say three or four million. But he was the first one out there doing arthroscopic anterior cruciate ligament reconstructions. So he got real busy because anterior cruciate ligament reconstructions are super common in Australia because they play Australian rules football and rugby and Australian rules football is crazy. It's basically like they run with a ball that's kind of somewhere between a basketball and a football and they have to bounce it every however many steps and then they can kick it and then they can either run past the goal or kick through goal posts, which they have to kick at on the fly. And if you're a college football fan, you'll notice that a lot of college football kickers are from Australia. They're usually 23, 24-year-old guys who have been kicking in Australia and are playing Australian rules football or going to kicking camps over there. They're all just good kickers. So they have these two sports that are very big ACL injuring sports. And so they, uh, they have club teams. So they don't really have high school teams like we do here. They would have club teams in the town, and then they would have, like, a, if a town was small enough, they would have a team 
for the town, and that team would play another town's team. And then within the bigger cities like Perth, they would uh, play clubs against each other. And the thing is that I, I don't know if it started at 16, but somewhere around 16 or 18, you could play on the club. And then, I mean, they had clubs for the younger kids too. But it would go up to, I, there was no sort of upper age limit. It was whenever you decided to stop playing. So they would have a lot of people in their mid-30s or at least early 30s to mid-30s playing these really rough games and tearing their ACLs a lot. So my fellowship chairman ended up super, super busy. Anyway, he also did a lot of knee replacements, and he said he didn't really start out in his career doing knee replacements because he was doing just sports medicine. But what had happened was as these people that he operated on in their 30s got to be later on in their 40s and 50s and needed knee replacements, he started doing knee replacements. And then essentially he started to do where he would do two, 200 or so knee replacements a year, which is a lot. But it's uh, what he would do. He would do more than that in ACLs, which is a lot too. Anyway, he, in addition to being a knee and shoulder surgeon, had knee arthritis. And he told me that if he didn't ride 100 miles a week, his knee really bothered him. And he said that a lot of people in his bike riding club also had knee arthritis. So ever since then, I've known, you know, and I've talked to a lot of patients and patients will say, well, how am I going to lose weight if I have knee arthritis? You know, some patients are, so we have certain factors and I'll go over those risk factors here in a minute. We'll go over those together in, in a minute, just a sec. So, so some patients have to lose weight before they can have a knee replacement. And they ask me, well, how do I get my weight off? And number one, it's 80% diet. Don't forget that when you're trying to lose weight, it's 80% diet. That is, that's what stinks. <laughs> for, Cause for instance, I rode my bike two hours yesterday and it wouldn't it be nice if I could then come home and have three or four slices of pizza and it would even out. It doesn't even out. It just doesn't. You got to eat, you got to eat clean and low calorie and, and if you're going to lose weight. But I suggest that to all my patients, both before and after knee replacement, as a, an excellent way to get exercise. Swimming's also good. Uh, walking is fine. Jogging is not good on your knees. And as you get older, unless you're real skinny, it's just going to get worse and worse. So, yeah, so biking is very good. Now, RAGBRAI, of course, it's going to be hot. And I think so there's. There's a lot of different ways to get injured in RAGBRAI. I mean, there's a lot of bikes going. I've never been involved in RAGBRAI, but I hear there's a lot of drinking going on <laughs> while this thing is happening. So you got people on their bikes drinking. So you can you can definitely crash and fall over and and uh, and get injured uh, when you have uh, bikers that are drinking while they bike. So if you're gonna ride RAGBRAI, be be careful out there. If you're gonna drink, maybe you shouldn't drink much until after the ride is over <laughs> or maybe don't drink any until the ride is over for the day and be real cognizant of the heat because you want to stay super hydrated and you can't just drink water. I think most people know all this stuff by now, but you can't just drink water. Uh, you got to get some Gatorade in you, Gatorade, Powerade, whatever, any of the sports drinks that keep your electrolytes up because you can end up getting a significant problem with the uh, with uh, your electrolytes and and there was just the other day I know it was 106 it's a little bit different but here's to tell you there was a a mountain biker who's a very in shape mountain biker went to it was in California or Arizona one of these desert places and 
he came upon some hikers who were just down because they were, they had not brought water with them and they were hiking and, uh, it was super hot. And so he gave them some water and then he, he stayed with them and a couple of his friends went and rode and were going to help direct the emergency people to these people. And then that biker, while he was sitting there, ended up getting heat stroke. And when he was trying to ride back, ended up dying. So, and this is a, this apparently was a, a mountain biker who was super in shape. So no matter what kind of shape you're in, once it gets hot, you really have to pay attention to what you're doing. Slow it down. Uh, rag rye, as far as I understand, is not a race. Stay super hydrated, especially, you know, if you are uh, one of the, if you're a party biker, if you're going to drink the night before you ride, then, you know, just make sure that you hydrate as you, you know, have a beer, have some water, have a beer, have some water. Try not to go too big with it. And uh, then in the morning, make sure you slug down some uh, Gatorade to, you know, replenish your electrolytes. So that's my little little rag rag bri spiel. It's a it's kind of a cool thing, the fiftieth one, and they're expecting, like I said, tons of people. I don't remember what the number is, but it's a big number that they're expecting to go from Ames to Des Moines. So it's gonna be gonna be kind of crazy. So yeah, so risk factors with knee replacement and how we assess those and how we do everything we can to optimize the patient. So. What are the the risk factors with knee replacement? Well, with any surgery, it's infection. Uh, with a knee replacement in particular, you can have a blood clot afterwards that can be in your veins and can go up into your lungs and cause trouble and even kill you. You can get an, a fracture during the surgery. That's very rare. It does happen occasionally. And you could have a vessel or a nerve injury. Those are even more rare. I have not even seen one of those in my career so that's that's super duper rare, but what are the the other things you could get a pneumonia, you know, and then any medical complications, stroke, this kind of stuff. So what do we do to try to optimize the patient and reduce the chance that the patient will have any of these problems? One is obviously we make sure that their blood pressure is well controlled, blood sugar, hemoglobin A one C is how we test that because, you know, if you're diabetic or know someone who's diabetic, you know that the blood sugar can go up and down, can be very variable on a day-to-day basis, and it takes a long time to really establish where it is. But the hemoglobin A1C gives us a good clue, and there's a number, and the number is 7. And if you're above 7, I will not do your knee replacement. The reason is because the literature says that if you're above 7, that you have a higher risk of complications. And so got to get that down. And why, why do you have complications? Well, hemoglobin A1C, what that tells you is how much of your hemoglobin is clustered with sugar. And if the hemoglobin is clustered with sugar, so what is hemoglobin? Well, hemoglobin is the molecule within the red blood cell that allows for exchange of oxygen. So if the hemoglobin is what they call glycosylated. That's that's what the A1C, it's basically looking at glycosylated hemoglobin. So sugar-coated hemoglobin, which sounds sounds like a snack, but but sugar-coated hemoglobin will not exchange the oxygen efficiently. Well, what does that mean? What that means is that 
the oxygen is not getting to the end tissue. When we say end tissue, we mean it's not getting to your heart. It's not getting to your eyes. It's not getting to your brain. Wherever the Every part of your body requires blood. And the, what blood gives it among the other nutrients is obviously the key one is oxygen, without which everybody's in big trouble. So if you if your hemoglobin is glycosylated, then your wound healing is going to be worse. Okay? And diabetics have a problem with wound healing, and this is one of the real big problems. One of the real big causes that diabetics have problems with blood healing is because their hemoglobin is coated with sugar and won't exchange oxygen into the tissue that's trying to heal on the incision, okay? So that's a risk factor, and that's sort of the mechanisms by which that particular risk factor is dangerous. Now, I did tell you last week, I believe, I think I said it, I don't know if I didn't, you can check your hemoglobin A1C, yeah, I think I did. You can check your hemoglobin A1C at Walgreens, you can go get a hemoglobin A1C kit uh, for fifty dollars for two checks, and I don't know, I don't know what it costs to get your hemoglobin A1C checked through insurance and all that stuff. But I'm just telling you, if you want to have, if you check your sugar on the day to day and you're trying to figure out where your hemoglobin A1C is, you can actually check it on your own at home. The wonders of modern technology—it's pretty cool. Hemoglobin A1C. We're talking about risk factors now for knee, repla- knee replacement. Obesity. So obesity, the body mass index of 40. Uh, now, body mass index is an index of your height versus your weight. A body mass index of 40 has been noted to have a higher complication rate. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that it is difficult to do the procedure with that much tissue around the knee itself, and it can cause issues. It can cause a difficulty with getting your instruments positioned right. And so, and on top of that, then there are also a higher rate of infections and wound healing problems and things like pneumonia in a patient. So the body mass index of 40 is the cutoff, at least for me. Now I'll, if a patient's lost a ton of weight and they're sitting at 41, 42, I'll, I'll cut them some slack. But if they come in at 43, I tell them they got to get down to 40. So hemoglobin A1C, body mass index of 40, you know, osteoporosis, we can't do much about. It's a risk factor. It doesn't, it does increase the chances of having a fracture during the surgery. Usually those work out pretty well. You don't usually break the middle of the femur. You usually break within the knee, able to fix it during the case. And, uh, um, usually they work out just fine, but it's not, not pleasant for anybody involved. But we can't really fix osteoporosis. You can slow it down, but you can't really rebuild bone. So you just have to kind of understand that that's a risk factor. Any, obviously, any of the underlying cardiac problems, those create an increased risk factor. Any underlying lung problems or neurologic problems, musculosclerosis, things like that. So we optimize what we can optimize when we're doing a knee replacement. What we can optimize is weight, hemoglobin A1C, uh, blood pressure, things like that. And then it's all a matter of balancing you know, what's the risk? A knee replacement's inherently a risky procedure. 95% of patients do just fine. And those are good odds. But there's still, you know, 1% of patients will get infected no matter what you do. Fewer than 1% of patients will get a uh, blood clot. Now, it used to be higher. 
It's interesting. We used to use more powerful blood thinners and sit the patients in bed. Now we get the patients up real quick and get them moving and use less powerful blood thinners. And that's turned out to be a big revolution in the treatment. And that's really helped keep the percentage of people down that have blood clots. But you'll have some patients where, you know, there's just a lot of medical issues and you have to say, all right, well, have to have a talk with the patient and say, you know, you're looking at really not being able to walk very far, if not maybe even going into a wheelchair, whatever it is, but you have these risk factors. It's, it's complicated stuff. Knee replacements aren't, it's not all that some super healthy 62 year old comes in with knee arthritis and uh, is thin and has no diabetes and you just knock that knee in and the patient does great. Those are, those are the easy ones, but there's, all of those factors create significant challenges and they're, they're something that the primary care doctor, the orthopedic surgeon and the patient and the family all have to be kind of on the same page when talking about risk moderation and then risk evaluation. So, you know, it's a great operation in your placement, but it's something that you, you really have to, uh, you really have to take some serious thought with and, uh, have to think about. But like I said, 95% of the people do just great. I know it's it's transformed a lot of people from just living marginal, marginally active lives to really going out and having a good, vibrant, active life, which it did for my mother. My mother's doing super great with hers. I didn't do them, of course. You day one of medical school, don't operate on your family. So anyway, that's the show for this week. And uh, thank you all again for listening a bit. And uh, you have a blessed week, Iowa.